You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a super, super great pleasure to have Molly join me today. I owe my friendship with Molly to our mutual friend, Rick Sapkin. So I want to give a, a, a shout out to Rick because without his introduction to Molly, I knew about Molly's game. I knew about Molly's story, but I didn't know Molly. And to have her on the Walker webcast is a real pleasure and honor. So Molly, let me do a quick intro and then we'll dive into my first question for you. So Molly Bloom is an American entrepreneur, speaker, and author of the 2014 memoir, Molly's Game. She's a graduate of the University of Colorado, trained to be an Olympic skier, and was injured during the Olympic qualifiers. In April of 2013, she was charged with running a high-stakes poker game that originated in the Viper Room in Los Angeles, which attracted wealthy people, sports figures, and Hollywood celebrities. In May 2014, after pleading guilty to reduce charges, she was sentenced to one year of probation, a $200,000 fine, and 200 hours of community service. A film adaptation of her book, Molly's Game, was released in 2017, starring Jessica Chastain and directed by Aaron Sorkin. The film received a 2018 Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Molly has a podcast, Torched, which we will talk about today, as well as a prolific speaking career that takes her all over the world to speak to corporations, industry associations, and YPO chapters. So Molly, we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit on your story and its lessons, but I got to start here. The game Molly's Game was your life's passion that you worked so hard to build and curate, yet when Toby Maguire asked you to bark like a seal <laughs> for $1,000 or lose the game, you refused to do it. Why? Oh, because it, you know, that would have cost me my dignity. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, about that, Molly, and I think mm-hmm. about how much, I mean, when you, in the book, you talk extensively about you were this woman from Colorado invited into a situation that you knew wasn't normal and you saw the opportunity that it presented and you grabbed it. And when you grabbed it, you grabbed it with all of your focus and all of your attention and, and, and every ounce of energy you possibly had. And you talk about how much it meant to you and how it was your path forward. And so when I think about all you had invested in it and all you'd put up with to keep it going, and then all of a sudden Toby says, bark like a seal. And you said, no, I ain't going to do that. It seemed like a relatively low price to pay to keep it going. <laughs> Well, it depends on, on, I guess, who you are and, and what's most important to you. And, you know, I, I think that I've made a lot of decisions like that, that have seemed to cost me a lot in the here and now, but paid off later. And that story is a little bit more complicated. The story you're talking about was the culmination of basically a, de- a demand for compliance in a lot of different ways, in how I got paid, in how I ran my business, 
he wanted to be the puppet master. And I couldn't, I couldn't roll like that. You know, I, I had to be my own woman. I had to run things in, in the way that I, I felt was right and true. And, you know, it, it, it seemed like a high cost at the time, but the cost of being his lackey would have, would have been so much greater. So let's back up for a second. Born in Colorado, yes. two younger brothers that you would affectionately call tiny, evil, superhuman prodigies. <laughs> so talk for a moment about those two yeah. tiny, evil, super prodigies and how they influenced what you ended up doing with your career so much. Okay. So the evil part is just for a joke because they happen to be incredible humans. But let me just break it down for you. Okay. So little brother, Jeremy number one in the world in mogul skiing at 18 years old, went on to win three world championships and compete in two Olympics, going into both Olympics as number one in the world. When he retired from his skiing career in Turin, after Turin, he went to the NFL Combine, got drafted fifth round of the Philadelphia Eagles. He was an Abercrombie model somewhere in the midst of these athletic careers. He started a charity at 21 years old, granting wishes for senior citizens in our community. And most recently, the kid that we thought was just the athlete founded a software company and sold it for a bunch of money. So that's little brother. Middle brother, Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General, who has literally dedicated his life to saving children with congenital heart defects. And so like they... (laughs) This was my dinner table and their skill set presented so early on in these two categories that were very important and fundamental in my family, which were athletics and, and academics. And, you know, I spent that, I spent my childhood just really reeling thinking, what's my thing? You know, like, how do I, how do I get a seat at this table? So one of the ways you got to see at the table was to dress up as a duck fairy when you were <laughs> five years old. I actually, Molly, as an aside, my um, our CFO at Walker Dollar, Greg Florkowski's daughter, wants to be a fairy unicorn for Halloween okay. this year. And he told me that at dinner two nights ago. And I said, <laughs> Molly Bloom was a duck fairy when she was five years old. It's awesome. There are parallels here. Maybe she can steal part of her costume. But oh you, read, my you read biographies about women who changed the world. And I when I read that about you, yes, you had these two brothers who were incredibly talented, sort of seemingly out of the womb. And that was mm-hmm. always a little bit of chipping at your heels, if you will, and finding your place. But you also always had the intention to change the world. I mean, reading biographies about women who'd impacted the world, that said that you had some interest in really making your mark. No question. And I wanted to do it in a way that was good and pure and kind. And I really credit my mom for that. One of the reasons why I I read those biographies is because I came home from school and I said, man, in my history classes, all we learn about is men. And so my mom went to the librarian at our school and arranged for me to be able to check out all these books, all these biographies about women who, who had impact. And, you know, the other tenet that my mom was so passionate, is so passionate about is doing things with integrity and kindness and and keeping close that that moral code. So I I really credit that intention to great parenting. And then (laughs) I took it out into the world and got a little distracted, but. We're going to get, we're going to get to the distraction piece. So an extremely good student at the University of Colorado, I think you were a 398 GPA. 
you take the LSAT's average LSAT acceptance score to Harvard Law School is like I think a sixty-eight, and you got a seventy-two or something like. Okay, that. hang on. I gotta I gotta correct the record here. Right. Sorkin inflated my LSAT score. I did All well. Right. All right. <laughs> I, I love that because they're very. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but there are very few things you and I have talked about this before. But there are very few things that aren't reality in yes. the movie. You yes. mentioned to me that the crash, and this is actually a perfect segue to it. So you said that they over also hype the cracks that you had at the Olympic trials. Uh, but you did have surgery on your back when you were 12 years old. You've got two rods in your back yeah. and you landed on it. That ended the skiing career. You yeah. head off to LA to quite honestly, just get warm and kind of get out of the, the cold and, 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 and winter season. And you, you do a bunch of odd jobs running around waiting tables, this and that. And then you start working for, per your words, a diabolical, tyrannical real estate developer. And you, <laughs> you, you call him Reardon in your book. To anyone who's listening today, you can go find out what Reardon's real name is if you want to. And he's done a very good job of cleaning up his LinkedIn profile and thinking that you is, he is as nice a guy as anyone you will ever meet. But if you read Molly's book and watch the movie, you will realize that Reardon is lacking a little bit as it relates to, let's just say, he would have many HR violations if he were to work for Walker and Dunlop. Let's just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> I think but that's fair. With all that said, Molly, as I listened to you and the lessons you learned from him, you learned how to put up with shit. You pushed yourself to learn new things. You watched him sell people on deals that they should have never invested in. And I sort of started to appreciate how much of a jerk he was because he actually made you an entrepreneur. He made you understand service. He, he demanded an unrelenting work ethic. And then he introduced you to the game, actually mm-hmm. his game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, th- this character that we call Reardon, when I started working for him, mid-20s, had been too smart for his own good, had raised a bunch of money. This was pre-2008. And to be honest, you know, Reardon has has grown. And, and in a, a very interesting turn of events, was one of the only people loyal to me when everything fell apart. You know, so I think... I think in those days, he was a psychopath. There's no way around it, but you're right. And, and I think the most important thing I learned from him is he would figure it out. There's a problem, he would solve it. There's an industry he, wasn't, he didn't understand, he became a student of it. There was no sort of like barrier to entry that he didn't surmount in a very short amount of time. And that was so instrumental for me to learn to be that level of problem solver and to look at things as like, this looks like a closed door, but I'm going to figure out how to open it no matter what. And that was huge. Well, I, as I think about that, Molly, and I think about the way that you manage the game, here are these stars who Mm -hmm. seemingly have agents and all sorts of people who can do things for them. But one of the things that I was so interested in is when they would text you at the table and try and get a read on who some guest was, you knew everything about that guest. When they wanted a table at a fancy restaurant, which I presumably would think they could have anyone kind of call up to get, you figured out how to get it, get it quickly, get it perfectly, et cetera, et cetera. And it was that sort of concierge service that you provided beyond the attractive women to serve drinks and knowing what their favorite drink was and having a nice cheese plate. But it was that one-to-one relationship you built with some of these A-list stars that really made you the glue on the game. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's absolutely a fair assessment. 
you know, in the, in the early days, I was just serving drinks at this game. And these people were so prolific. And I, I assumed, like you assumed, they don't need me. What kind of value can I confer in this room? And I think it's this really important lesson that human beings are human beings. And if you figure out ways to make their life easier, to solve problems they you're not asked to solve, to show up for people and not walk into a room thinking, okay, what can I gain right now? And flip that to what can I give? That's my challenge. How can I upgrade this experience? How can I cultivate this authentic relationship? How can I actually get invested in this person as a human being and in their life? And even those people at the top echelon, and I'm not just talking about A-list actors. I'm talking about the heads of some of the biggest investment banks in the world, some of the most well-known politicians, people in, in the tech world. You know, I only named the people that had been named in the press or that had named themselves, but there's a whole other universe that was represented at those games. And to be able to start to see that human beings are human beings. And if you find a way to make people feel taken care of, seen, heard, remembered, that works across the board for everyone. And what that involves a lot is dropping your own ego and your own fear of who am I compared to these people and thinking about like, I'm just going to show up. I'm just going to show up for them and be of service. There was tremendous value there. They also placed a lot of trust in you without having reason to do it. And I don't say that in a, in a critical way. All I'm trying to say is you were new to them. You were someone who was introduced to them through Reardon. And mm-hmm. yet immediately you're texting with them. You've got their cell phone numbers. I mean, you talk about the discussions that you didn't have with mm-hmm. your family and your friends about what you were doing and how hard that was. Cause you wanted to sit there and say, I'm texting with Leonardo DiCaprio and tell everyone <laughs> in the world. And yet you didn't, that was a really mature thing to do at the time, but many people would have failed on that test. What was it that made you realize that if you told the world about what you were doing, it was going to end pretty quickly? I think from my early sports career, I had a, an ability to get a handle of myself, emotions, impulses, to not only be disciplined in the world, but, but to be disciplined internally, that helped a lot. Yeah. And I, I've also, I also, something I realized when I started with these games is I have this ability to be strategic, to think about the long game, to run the tape forward and to make choices that are, are aligned with the, the, the greater outcome. And I think that that in, in a way also comes from sports and how much mental discipline you have to you have to have there's one line in the book that just talking about this customer service focus because i think this is so applicable from what you did with the game to anyone in the in the business world and you say mm-hmm. you can't place enough value on someone being seen heard or remembered you can't place enough value on someone being seen heard or remembered you're working with people in this game who are all seen more than almost anyone else on the face of the planet. They're Hollywood stars. Mm-hmm. They're on screens mm-hmm. all over the place. But you identified how to identify with them one-to-one, how to how to make mm-hmm. them feel seen, heard, and remembered. I mean, any tricks in all of that other than just texting and thinking about what they like to do? Was there anything that was unique in the way that you made them feel seen, heard, and remembered? Yeah, I did a lot of listening. And that <laughs> listening is, seems to be an, an art that is disappearing more and more. 
in a conversation so often people seem to listen, but they're kind of computing what they're going to say next or how they're going to sound smart. And it's not this authentic, interested listening. Another thing that I did is I would take notes on my conversations with people so that the following week or the following day, I could check in. You know, we were talking about this yesterday in progress, you know, whether it's a deal that they're working on, a relationship issue that they're having, two things that come to mind. First of all, to assume that people who are seen often, that satiates it. It's almost the inverse. It's like a drug. They want it more. And so there's there's really no cap on how, how much people want to sort of feel special. And it, it's it's not this like cryptic, malicious thing. I mean, if you look at how human beings are designed and their core fears, after the first three, which are, you know, death, suffocation, and imprisonment, the next two are all about not feeling worthy, not feeling good enough, and addressing that on this level and understanding that is so important. And then, you know, the the other thing is, is even though a, a lot of these people have all these people in, you know, interested in their life or, or seeing them, there's always, not always, there's oftentimes this underlying thing of, but I'm just doing this so that I can gain something and learning how to sort of submit that. Of course, that was my play too. I'm not telling you that I was the mother Teresa of, of the gambling world, right? That just doesn't, that in a second. It doesn't work, but, but starting to just be a real human being and be like, okay, so I want to win, but I also want to, I, I'm going to take personally whether or not these people feel good in my presence. You know, I'm going to take their experience personally. That's going to be part of my personal win. And so to start to do work on yourself where you're not so transactional and your outcome of success is not just the dollar amount, but really like the effect you're having in the world. And I think that that's a buildable skill. I think empathy, I think character, I think all of these things are a buildable skill. And I think that over time, if you don't build it authentically, you get found out. So in the second game, you and the dealer decided to split your tips. And I think it totaled $15,000. So you walked home with $7,500. And in the book you write, I realized I had endless stamina when it came to making money. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a period there, Molly, as I read the book that reminded me a lot of Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman of running oh. around Hollywood and trying on dresses and all sorts of yes. different that just as I listen to you talk about walking into a, you know, into Barney's to buy a dress and paying with cash and the woman who's selling you the dress thinks that you are a prostitute and you're like, I'm not a prostitute. I didn't make this money doing selling my body. I made this money, you know, doing other things and, and, and just take my cash and not my credit card. Um, <laughs> it just, it reminded me so much of that scene. And I, and I listened to you and it, it was almost like a, it was almost as if you were manic at that time in the sense that there was just this opportunity in front of you that seemed so incredible and you just bought into it so fully. Did anything bring you back to earth at that time? Interesting question. I think your read on it is absolutely correct. I think there was this manic desire to figure it out, to stay in these rooms. 
and ultimately to own these rooms. And it wasn't just the money, although the, the money was huge. And what the money meant was that I didn't have to be powerless anymore. And that was the genesis behind it. And that was the drive. And I had novel moments of buying expensive dresses and even, you know, buying Bentley at 25 or whatever. But what it really was for me was I don't have to feel powerless. I have my thing. And now I know I'm an entrepreneur. And it started to fill that hole created in childhood of like feeling like a a nothing or a nobody or not knowing what what I was going to do or what I was going to be. I think that was the mania. And I got brought to earth many times. You know, the first time was when Reardon said, after six to eight months of hosting the games and starting to think through how I could, you know, how I could upgrade the experience and how to cultivate these relationships. And then, and then Reardon took the game from me. So Reardon took the game from you. I've already told the Toby Maguire story as it relates to Bark Like a Seal. So you decide to move to New York and A, it's important to keep in mind where the economy was because this all started in the early 2000s when the economy was running along and you moved to New York just before the GFC. So the world was shifting quite a bit, but you go into you know great detail talking about the fact that not only was the clientele distinct, the game was distinct, where you were in your life was distinct. And you say in the book, this time I wasn't going to be replaceable. I became the bank. Explain for our listeners what changed between LA and the way you ran the games in LA and when you went to New York, which made it so that you know you had been displaced. You'd lost mm-hmm. the game. And as a result, you kind of look to how do I end up owning the game rather than being a player in the game uh, when I go to New York? So to talk that through and where that ended up crossing the line. Yeah. So the first time I lost the game was when Reardon took the game in LA. And then I staged a coup, kind of. Right. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I had my own game. With Toby's help, him. right? With Toby's help, yep. Because, yeah. yes, by that time I had made some pretty strong allies. Right. So I took the game from Reardon or started my own game, however you want to look at it, and did really well. And then six years later... I was by all means guaranteeing the game when people uh, there, there was a one, one time when someone stiffed and, and we kind of chopped it up the the dealer and I, and we paid for it, but I wasn't in an official capacity bankrolling the game. It was kind of like if someone stiffs, then the game, you know, we'll, we'll chop it up, but I had become really good at vetting people and knowing who to extend credit to and collecting on that credit. And, you know, I I developed the skill. And so when Toby took my game in LA, this would have been a great time to go back to school or to parlay this into something that was scalable, that was less in the gray. And that was always the plan. My plan was not to be a game runner forever. My plan was to learn from these people, save a bunch of money, which I did. I saved millions of dollars. You know, I, I was making millions of dollars a year. And then parlay it into some career that is scalable, that I could tell my parents about, you know, that, that that's more, was more legitimate. But when Toby took the game in the way that he did, I knew I didn't want to go out like that. And so I was like, 
I'm going to build the biggest poker game in the world. I'm going to do it in New York City. I'm going to do it on Wall Street. <laughs> and like you said, it was 2008. You know, but sort of a tough road. On that. One is you're, you're quick in the book to say <laughs> the best way to get over feeling like a loser is to become a winner. Right. So, <laughs> you, you very clearly put it out there. It's sort of, I mean, there was a little bit of vindictiveness in the, I'm going to move to New York and reconstitute this game. Oh yeah. I had um, something to prove for sure. The, the other, the other piece to it is just before you became the bank, Molly, you, mm-hmm. you state in the book that it was crossing over and banking the game. That was what broke federal law, but just curious, the actual game in, in, in LA, of taking over a suite at the Four Seasons and, and having a private poker game. Is that 100% legal as long as you aren't banking the game? So it was it actually wasn't banking the game that put me in violation of the federal statute because I wasn't charging interest on the money I would extend or anything. I, I was just covering. What was the factor was taking a rake, taking a percentage of the pot. And up until this point, yes, I was doing it legally, both in in LA and in New York in the early days, because I had an event planning company. I produced these events. And then there was this unspoken rule in these games that if you wanted credit, you wanted your seat next week, you take care of Molly. And so, you know, people are winning and losing ridiculous numbers, 20 million, 100 million, like these kind of numbers. And the winners would tip. And so, you know, that kept me out of, out of the fray or out of the, the, the felony in New York, I started taking a rake. That's what broke me down. But, you know, when I got to New York, it was this, this daunting environment. I didn't really know anyone. I knew about this mythical game, these mostly hedge fund guys that played for ridiculous numbers, but, you know, trying to break into their, their little club and, and, and that game seemed impossible. And there was all these, there was a couple game runners who had run the games in New York city for 20 years and had all these contacts. And so I looked at this, what seemed like a very oversaturated market, very closed system and very terrible time (laughs) in financial history. And I just thought I'm going to figure out where the holes are. And so I just started, I got to the people that were playing that huge game, but I also I interviewed a ton of poker players in New York City and I said, what's the problem with the market? What, what's the problem with the industry? And what I found time and time again is that these people would risk a lot of money. They would sit down and play at these games. And a lot of time, these game runners, even though they're taking a big rake and making a, a, a big percentage, they would only pay if they got paid. So it was kind of a Ponzi scheme. And so I then, then it clicked. If I become the bank, if I have this ultra safe game on top of everything else, the, the, the sort of like, if someone walks in the room and they can feel like James Bond for the night and they can do business deals at the table and they know it's completely safe and secure monetarily, this is going to disrupt this industry. This is the way that I can innovate and I can take over. And, and that's what I did. That became, you know, within a couple of months, I was, I, you know, I was running New York city poker. I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, when you started at this, Reardon was your boss and he was, it was his game. Then you created your own game, having known the people around you and having some of the biggest names in Hollywood know you. And you sort of, to some degree had Toby as your partner. Now all of a sudden you've gone to New York all on your own. You Mm -hmm. don't have a partner. And not only is it a new city, 
it's new clientele. You are a one horse band. I mean, you are, you are, you are out there on your own. And I, as I read the book, I just sort of thought, how did you think that you'd be able to survive on your own? I, I, the, the amount of chutzpah, the amount of just confidence in yourself that you had to have. And it actually reminds me of Aaron Sorkin when you went to pitch him on the movie. You said, I've never seen someone so down on their life, their luck with so much overconfidence in themselves. Yeah. But, <laughs> anyway, but, but on that, Molly, I mean, honestly, you move across the country, whole new market, whole new clientele, and you go do it on your own. That fascinating. That was, that was so important for me to do. Because otherwise, I would have always thought that I got this thing handed to me. And, and yes, I capitalized on an opportunity and, and, and what have you. But to go to New York City, toughest city probably in the world, and to go into this underground environment by myself as a young woman and do this was so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid in a lot of ways. But but really, um, so important. So for a moment on that, not only doing it alone, but being the only woman in the room, you know, you, you studied the history of women who made a mark on the world. You'd had success out in LA, but you know, you say no women ever played in your game. They just, they, yeah. this was a, this was a testosterone driven male not dominated male monopoly on yep. this world. Talk for a moment about what you learned. You say in the book, Molly, that there were some people who, when you were serving them drinks, they'd engage with you and they were very nice and, and sociable. But the moment that you started running the game, they couldn't talk to you anymore. I mean, how'd you deal with that abject sexism? So I didn't let it stop. You know, I, I saw it happening. It, it was uncomfortable. Sometimes it hurt my feelings. Like I listen, I'm still like a, a, a you know, I'm still in my twenties <laughs> and, and, and I just didn't let it stop me. I found ways around it. I found ways to, I just found that if you make yourself the best at what you do and you don't buy into it, and you, and you just get into solution mode at every turn, it just becomes another problem. And starting a business, running a business, starting a family, running, that's all there is problems, <laughs> you know, it's just problem after problem and how well you navigate those problems, those obstacles I've found ultimately determines whether or not your outcomes are good. And so you know, I, I used it. I used the hurt or the anger or the humiliation as fuel to get better, to make myself better, to make myself more formidable. And, you know, I just kind of powered through it. And, and th that was how I handled it. And I just want to make one point here. If I would have let pros in the game, yeah, I would, there would have been women that played, but you know, by this time, my game was the $250,000 buy-in and it's like, women are probably too smart to like risk $250,000 on a Tuesday night poker game, you know? Like, but, but I've heard you say that not letting pros in was one of the keys to the success of it. 
because it made it an amateur game. And, you know, people like Bradley Rutterman could come in and lose $5 million at the table, even though you later found out what it was behind Bradley's game on why he was willing to lose 5 million. Well, it wasn't like he was willing, it wasn't like he was willing to lose 5 million bucks. He just sucked oh. the poker and, and was making money on the other side of it. But we'll talk about Bradley in two seconds, but okay. on it, just, you had, what was I found was interesting was you got new entrants by going to Vegas talking to people in Vegas and saying, send me your players. But was there a prerequisite that you weren't looking for any pros? You were looking just for amateurs. I was looking just for amateurs. What I found really early on that in order for this game to sustain, you want people of very equal playing styles and skill level, because then you have these huge outcomes at the end of the night. But, and I was keeping numbers on everyone at the end of the year, mostly the, the money is just changing hands. Now, if I would have let pros in, they would have sucked all the money out of the game and the game would have been over. And in the beginning, throughout my whole career, I had pros offering me the sun, moon, and stars. Three rolls on their money, meaning I don't have to risk anything. If they win, I win. Straight cash, like all kinds of things. And that's just one of those important things you have to think about is short term, this seems like a really great deal. Long term, this is, this is, this is the death of my game. One thing on that that I thought was interesting, Annie Duke has a new book out called Quit. And in it, she did a study as it relates to pros versus amateurs in Texas Hold'em. And the the, the typical pro only plays, they'll play 25% of the time, they'll fold 75% of the time, whereas the typical amateur plays over 50% of the hands that are dealt (laughs) to him or her, which I thought was really interesting that the pros can look at at the the cards that are dealt to them, and they will typically three out of four times just fold right at that point. Whereas the amateurs always sort of have this hope that they're going to have a workout of the hand and go keep playing it. Yeah. And I think in my game, it was probably more like 80, 90% that they were playing. <laughs> they keep playing because they have so yeah. much money, I guess. Um, well, talk they, for a moment yeah. on that, Molly, there's something now called game theory optimal. Can you yep. uh, just for a moment, let's talk about poker because yep. there are a lot of people listening who either play it or don't know a whole lot about it, but what's game theory optimal? Cause it seems like that's the new thing going on in poker these days. Yeah. It's basically just using the data, what you know about the stats and probabilities and odds and, and playing and playing that, you know, poker has this, this, the old school poker, like stigma was that, you know, these like cowboys, cowgirls come in and they're like, you know, on their gut instinct and their ability to read people, that's how they're winning the game. And the people lose when they overprivilege their, their gut instinct or, you know, sort of like their alleged ability to read it. And the people that are winning are are playing, are playing the numbers. You know, they're playing the odds there, there, there's a perfect way to play the game. And, and, you know, there's, quants and and all this stuff and and it's 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 much more i mean that that's how people are playing now so i mentioned bradley rutterman who was a hedge fund guy who set up a ponzi scheme he gets nailed by the feds and the process of the feds coming after him he basically squeals on the game tells them all and that was one of the reasons why a number of the names in the early game were published because they were published in that lawsuit. And you were very clear in only putting those names in your book and not putting the names of the unnamed out of that lawsuit there. But the feds now are coming after you. Uh, As I said, in the lead in, they throw the book at you. The movie starts with the feds coming in and basically 17 FBI agents putting up against the wall with bright lights in your eyes and semi-automatic machine guns. 
And one of the things that they brought against you, Molly, was allegations of sports betting. And I find it very interesting that part of the allegations in the suit against you were about sports betting, which is now legal in, I don't know whether it's all 50 states, but sports betting is ubiquitous everywhere and we're seeing in the world. And you have a great episode of your podcast talking about sport betting. But I was interested, you were a pretty active sports better while you were running the game. Is that not right? I never booked bets. I was never a bookie. I knew that that was very clearly a felony. But I knew all these, I knew all this sharp action, meaning I knew these handicappers and these people who studied the games and, and I had access to great information. So I would bet on the games. Yeah. <laughs> so... There are two 19 numbers that have a lot of significance to you and your brother. One of them them is 1955, which has significance to you. And the other one is 19.8, which has great significance to your brother, Jeremy. You want to explain to our listeners why 1955 and 19.8 have significant significance to you and your brother? Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, because you listened to this sooner than I did. 19.8 is a stipulation in the NCAA charter, right? Yeah. Correct. Okay. So Jeremy was, Jeremy played for the University of Colorado, was having a, a really prolific college career. You know, first time he touched the ball, I think he ran it for 80 yards for a touchdown, packed stadium. And this was as a freshman, but he was also skiing competitively, which is a very expensive sport and wanted to be able to accept his endorsements. The NCAA says no. So he actually takes it to court. The judge in his case was a huge Jeremy Bloom fan, but an even bigger University of Colorado fan and wanted to rule in favor of Jeremy. But there is this stipulation in the NCAA charter 19.8 that said, if they find the University of Colorado or Jeremy guilty, then they can invalidate the whole season of winning for University of Colorado, right? So the judge had to rule against Jeremy. Correct. 1955. The judge judge wanted to rule for Jeremy, thought the case against him was terrible, but they couldn't take the risk that if the University of Colorado went to a bowl and they could take everything away from them. And so as a result of 19.8, he sided with the NCAA. Yeah. 1955. 1955 is a federal statute running an illegal gambling business. Now, the interesting thing about 1955 is it is supposed to be only used to indict people who run games of chance. Games of chance, blackjack, roulette. There's a little skill, but not really. I mean, it's a roll of the dice. It's a turn of the hand. Poker, you could make a really strong argument, is a game of skill. People are playing each other. The pros that are winning the World Series are generally there at the final table every year. And so... For years, for decades, poker was never included in this charge. Right before I got indicted, the government challenged a case in the Eastern District of New York, uh, and new precedent was set. And so here we are. So you've got the case coming against you by the feds, and you go get Jim Walden, who at that time was at Gibson Dunn, to be your lawyer. And although the name actor and all that in the movie is, is... Aaron Sorkin eyes and not exactly yeah. the way it was. You did go get one of the very best lawyers in the country to defend you. And Jim took you on 
basically out of the goodness of his heart. One of the things I thought in doing a little bit of research on Jim that was so interesting, Jim also represented Gregory Rodchenkov, who's the yep. who's the guy who called the the, the Russian the government for their doping. And if yep. any of you watched the movie Icarus, Icarus is all about Grigory, and Jim was his attorney, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. But you, you say, Molly, that your mom cries every time that she hears Jim Walden's name mentioned because <laughs> she just thinks the world of him. Talk for a moment about why Jim was so good as your attorney. It was interesting because after they set that new precedent, what happened was the government seized all my assets. So I talk about logging into my bank account and seeing a, a balance of negative $9 million. I go back home. I live, I move in with my mom thinking it's all over and trying to put my life back together in the mountains of Colorado. And it was two years later that the government sent 17 FBI agents with machine guns and arrested me. They'd been building a case against me and it was as big of a, of a shock to me as anything in my life. Because I hadn't run a game for two years. And, and my attorney said, if you want her, she's here. Just tell us. We'll come in. So at this point, you know, you have a day and a half to get to New York City. I've been arrested by, I mean, I, I just, it's, I'm having a hard time grasping reality, you know, and I'm in this arraignment with a whole slew of really serious Russian organized crime individuals who are sitting in the audience on this side and their wives and girlfriends are sitting on this side. And I'm just like, what is happening in my life? And my mom's there and we're both just shell-shocked. And we have eight meetings with attorneys. Seven out of eight of them said, if you don't have a retainer, which I didn't, I didn't have a cent. Government took all my money. My mom puts up her house to bail me out of jail. We're not going to represent you. And Jim Walden met with us and said, you need a chance. You need a shot. You know. And I'm going to go to Gibson and I'm going to say, look, we'll figure out the money. And I started working with Jim and you know, I, I remember going into his office and saying, okay, Walden, what's our strategy and what's our angle? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> trying to put it like tough girl, like gambling background. And he's like, Molly, integrity is going to be our strategy and our angle. And it was that simple to him. That's who he is. And he is the human being that in my most vulnerable time, probably my, my most moldable time brought me back to that, brought me back home and made me remember who I wanted to be no matter what. And having someone like Jim fight for you and instruct you and influence you in that way was so incredible and instrumental. And I just knew I wanted to be Jim Walden, you know? And, and I was just like, I made this deal with myself never again. My soul will never be for sale again. Like it will be these principles and these morals that I follow, that I cling to, I will conduct myself with integrity no matter what. And that's why, you know, a, a couple of weeks later when I, when the prosecutors wanted that meeting and what they wanted was they, they didn't care about the mobsters and they didn't care about the gangsters, which, you know, I had run-ins with that was scary and terrible and everything. They wanted me to wear a wire and try to get information from the politicians, from the billionaires, from the celebrities on things like, are they betting sports? You know, like things that I didn't really believe in my heart of hearts were creating harm in society. And so their deal was, we'll give you all your money back. We'll give you a deferred prosecution, but you need to help us take down these people. And it didn't feel right, you know, and it. It felt like 
the position I was in was a hundred percent my fault. Nobody tried to trick me into it. It wasn't like I didn't understand how things work. And it wasn't like I didn't have a, a lot of opportunity. I, I have a great family. I have tons of opportunities. And so I just knew in my heart that I had to stand for my own, the consequences of my own actions. And I was terrified of the outcome, terrified of jail, terrified of not ever having money again. But I just knew that I had to, I had to make that choice. Was it that time that you decided you'd also give up and go dry? Where was, where was that of you focusing on your own personal health that came into that? Was it in that moment of clarity as it relates to your ethics and what you would and wouldn't do as it relates to the Justice Department? Or was it before that? There were a couple times. It's something that I can, you know, that, that I consistently sort of look at and evaluate. When I was running the games in New York, when I started to become this person that I, I didn't, you know, that, that prioritized money and greed over integrity and, and, and started to make these choices. And I started to use a lot of substances. You know, at first it was like just to be able to stay up and, and everything. And, and, and for, all, for the games, it was like Adderall. And then I started to drink a lot and I started to not like myself as much. And, and you know, it's just this, this, this whole thing. And so when I first, when the feds seized my assets, I got sober. I needed to be clear. And I also, at that time, really had a problem, you know, and, and then after I had fixed my life completely from the outside, I got sober again. And, you know, that's, that's a different sort of, there was a different genesis for that or a different reason for that. But basically getting sober, what it meant to me was no more crutches. You have to face the full weight of your reality, of the things that you've done, of who you've been, of how you need to change, of the consequences of living this way. You have to face it fully, no outs. And, and, that, and that was what basically the reasons for getting sober. So you write the book and then Aaron, you get Aaron Sorkin, who I said previously when you went to meet with them and you worked really hard to get the meeting with Aaron. I, I have to say, I mean, one of the things that's really evident, Molly, is you have an incredible ability to identify talent. And when you identify what you want, you go after it with sort of this unrelenting effort and focus. And so, you know, you went around Hollywood trying to find someone to make your movie, but you kept saying Aaron Sorkin's the person that I need to meet with. And you finally got your meeting with him and you finally convinced him to do it. He turned it into an incredible movie. But as you say, you know, you went from walking down the red carpet to a jail cell to walking down the red carpet at the Oscars. I mean, what an incredible turn of events over a very short period of time from facing real jail time to having a understanding judge who didn't sentence you to any time in prison to then turning around and having your story made into a movie that was a wild success. Yeah. You know, after sentencing, I, of course, when he said that he wasn't going to sentence me to jail, like I lost my feet. Like there's no, it's impossible to articulate how terrifying it is to anticipate losing your freedom. And when I didn't have to go to prison, I was incredibly incredibly relieved but then there was this moment a couple days weeks later of like I'm 35 years old I'm millions of dollars in debt I'm a convicted felon I'm a social pariah the tabloids are telling this tale nobody wants to take my phone call my network is decimated and I can't stay here 
you know, I can't stay this ruined. Like, I don't want to miss life. I don't want to miss having a family. I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss it, you know? And so I had to get really strategic and I thought, okay, there's a story here, but there was a lot to navigate. The publishers only wanted this incredible take celebrity takedown piece, which I wasn't willing to write. So I wrote, I wrote a book and got a small book deal and it, and it didn't move the needle. And then I got to Hollywood and people loved the story, but they were all so terrified of the billionaires, the A-list celebrities, the politicians who were trying as hard as they could to get this, to bury this story. And so I had to just get really strategic. And what I did is I made this short list of people in Hollywood who don't have to play politics. It's the Spielbergs, it's the Shonda Rhimes, it's the Aaron Sorkin. And, and Aaron has always been my favorite writer. And so I just wanted my shot with him. You know, I just wanted to have a shot. And thankfully, luckily, he wrote the movie and it did well. I got that second chance. Very much so. So now you do a lot of speaking. As I said at the top, you run around and as Aaron Sorkin says, having, having listened to you, she gives the audience the goosebumps experience. Yeah, um, I about that. In, when you speak to groups, you talk about the playbook. What's Molly's playbook as it relates to what you learned from your career? And quite honestly, I was thinking about it. You built a multi-million dollar business as a sole practitioner, no marketing, no CRM system. You barely didn't even have a bank account. I mean, (laughs) you want to talk about a unicorn business. You almost didn't even have a bank account and you built a multi-million dollar business. But what's the Molly playbook as it relates to takeaways on how people ought to think about their careers? The first thing that I talk about is, you know, when I was, when I was 12 years old and I got that diagnosis of scoliosis and the doctors told me that my ski career was over, it was the first time in my life that I realized that I have to take responsibility for my own life and I have to figure out how to be my own champion, my own coach and, and to believe in myself because if I'm going to wait around for the world to believe in me or give me permission, it's never going to happen. So it was cultivating that sort of belief in myself. Then it's growth mindset. It's believing that with the right amount of effort and optimism and ability to stay uncomfortable in the learning process, that you can change your intelligence, your abilities, the outcomes of your life, starting to understand how to build real relationships. I'm not where I am right now without relationships. And learning how to cultivate those authentic relationships, learning how people work, being able to put what you need to the side to focus on the humanity of it all is super important. Being able to manage your own mind. This is like, this is for me, this is the biggest. All those times where I felt like I was finished, I had to have this agency over my mind to shift out of the narrative, to shift out of that negative mindset and into something else. And, and for that reason, a meditation practice, I think is the most profound productivity, resilience, powerful practice a person can have because it teaches you how to start observing the noise, observing negativity, observing fear, observing doubt, and sitting above it, and then being able to exert that agency to choose a different way to pivot, to get back in the game, 
you know, and, and so like this, this ability to manage your own mind, manage, manage your emotions, it's just huge. Finding the right people in everything, you know, like whether it's, you know, I, I had to have this like cervical fusion and I, I'm like, I'm flying to Hopkins to the guy, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to the, the guy that does the, like the NFL, like, cause I don't want to mess around. And so I just, just shooting for that level of, of partnership in everything that you do, I think makes a huge difference. And then, you know, the, the last piece for that is it is really hard to maintain high character in this world. It's not something that we should assume is a foregone conclusion. I think it takes work and I think it is the ultimate long game. And so I have a practice that I instituted after this whole thing where at the end of the day, I look at how I showed up. I look at who I want to be um, and, and how I showed up in the world. And that ranges from, did I procrastinate or, you know, did I, did I hit my goals or, but it also is, was I honest today? Was I completely selfish or was I trying to give of myself? And I just do this really quick checklist and I, and I find out what I need to work on. And I, and I, and I use that as a way to maintain integrity and, and to, you know, keep my character on point and, and that has been tremendously valuable. And in the times that I wasn't doing it, tremendously harmful. <laughs> so at the end of one of the speeches that I watched, you were talking to people about creating a vision and what does your future look like and then executing on it. So as you now look at this next chapter, what's Molly execute on next? Beyond being a great mom to Fiona. Thank you. Yeah, I had a, a kid seven months ago and that wasn't easy either, but um, <laughs> it's not easy when, when she got here, but it's the most rewarding thing ever. I really believe in the power of gamification. I watched some of the world's most powerful, connected people who could do anything in the world sit around and play cards with each other for thousands of hours. And when you strip away the gamification, you have people just doing simple math with each other, you know? And so to wrap something in, in gamification and hold the attention of these people is so powerful. And so my long-term plan is to figure out ways to use gamification to help kids learn things that are traditionally hard to learn, to help maybe adults learn about cognitive bias. That's always been my dream. And, and I'm getting to a point where I think I'm closer to being able to, to develop that. And, and so that that's long-term and short-term. I have another book coming out. I have a Netflix documentary and a new podcast and, and an app that sort of connects people and helps them to put into place a lot of these, these learnings. Anyone wants to hear more about Molly on gamification, her most recent episode on the Torched webcast talks a lot about that. There's also a fascinating one in there on a poker player who was breaking the rules by somehow tapping into RDIF technology. It's a fascinating story if anyone wants to listen to it. And uh, then another one where she brings on her brother, Jeremy, to talk about the NCAA and and nils and how the world of sponsorship has changed so much. And it is, I will tell you, Molly, just it's bittersweet to hear the price that Jeremy paid 
because yeah. of the old NCA rules. And then to see now the NCA moving and changing, just like we're seeing organizations like the PGA have to change as well. I agree. You've been amazingly generous with your time. I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your time away from Denver, and I look forward to seeing you back home. My thanks again to uh, our mutual friend, Rick, for putting in the two of us in Absolutely. touch with one another. And thank you so much for sharing today. Thanks for a great conversation. It's been great. I'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone, for okay. joining us today. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.